we'd acquired all his, all his drill cores at great expense, but they would never find anybody who was interested in working on it. If they'd worked on it, they might have, they might have discovered platinum, palladium and gold and stuff in these cores, but they didn't. Welcome to Polar Podcasts, where you'll hear stories from geologists who've spent their careers, their lives, exploring and studying the remarkable and remote geology of Greenland. Why did they become fascinated with Greenland? What were the problems and the discoveries that drove them? And what was it like working in these remote places, where few people venture, even now? I'm Julie Holtz. In this episode, we hear more from Kent Brooks, Emeritus Professor at the Geological Museum in Copenhagen, about the Skergard intrusion, which he first encountered on a geological expedition in 1966 and which was to become the focus of his long career working in East Greenland, about his move away from Oxford to Copenhagen, forays into studying the unique geology of South Greenland, and being drawn back to East Greenland, where his research interests would be firmly rooted for the decades ahead. The, uh, the Skargod intrusion in East Greenland it belongs to a class of igneous rocks known as layered igneous intrusions, where uh, basaltic magmas intruded the Earth's crust and solidified in so-called magma chambers. Uh, in doing this, it uh, undergoes differentiation. That is, the uh, high-temperature minerals crystallize first and they uh, separate out, leaving a liquid behind which is a different composition, a liquid or melt behind which is a different composition. And in this way, it's thought that the, uh, the uh, spectrum of various igneous rocks have largely been formed. And so a study of layered intrusions will uh, show the processes which take place in silicate magmas leading to the various igneous rocks which we have at the present time. As anyone can imagine, it's extremely difficult studying this, this business because magmas come out of the Earth's surface as lava flows and they're easy enough to study, but if they stop in the Earth's crust, several kilometres down the Earth's crust, and, and differentiate there, it's virtually impossible to study in situ. You can only study it when the uh, magma chamber has cooled, been uplifted and eroded away and exposed on the surface. Now in 1931 or 1930, Wager found the, uh, the Skergod intrusion Kangasluxrak, which lies 400 kilometres north of Tassilak in East Greenland. Lawrence Wager was professor at Oxford in his later years and Kent's supervisor. He was part of the, uh, the British Arctic Air Route expedition, which had the base camp at uh, Supertok to the west of Sermonic Fjord. This was the first, the first uh, expedition to Greenland which made use of aircraft. They had two gypsy moths and they took spectacular air photographs of a large area of unknown East Greenland, including the basalts of the Blossomville coast. They uh, sailed up in the expedition ship to Kangatluxrak and Wager discovered this intrusion, which previously had been thought to be made of sandstone. He identified as being uh, Laird Gabro, which uh, the layering, when seen from a distance, looked like a sedimentary rock and the brownish colour looked like sandstone. The Skergord Gabros are brownish, rusty coloured rocks because they have an high iron content. A way to recognise that the, uh, the Skergord intrusion would be an excellent place to study the processes going on within the Earth's crust 
as Magmas differentiate. And he uh, organized an expedition in uh, 1935 to 36, an overwintering expedition, which he crammed into a, uh, a very active life of becoming, becoming uh, a professor at Durham, first at Reading and then at Durham, subsequently at Oxford, uh, and uh, an attempt to climb Everest, where he got to visit the highest, the highest mountaineer in the world in 1933, I think, 1934 maybe. And he sailed with Ida Mickelson down the East Greenland coast in 1933. Uh, so they overwintered in Kangasluxrak, not only working on the Skergold intrusion, but uh, doing a large regional study as well, and covering, covering huge areas of country by a dog sledge. They um, overwintered there along with a, a family from Amasadik who uh, hunted seals for them. So they lived mainly off the land. Yeah. The, uh, the Wager and Deer published their work on the Scaregold Intrusion in 1939. It although the, the, war, the war had broken out at this time, it immediately became a um, required reading for just about every geologist in the world because it. Uh, it showed clearly the sort of processes that had been uh, prognosticated by Norman Bowen using experimental techniques on silicate melts. The, uh, they returned to the Skergold intrusion again in 1953 to uh, augment the sample they had and do further mapping and working on several of the intrusions in the neighbourhood. At this time, they uh, not only the, the emphasis was on uh, look at the processes in which differentiation had taken place, but also it was directed to showing the behaviour of many obscure chemical elements in uh, differentiating magmas. How, how, do, how do elements like zirconium and uranium and strontium and rubidium behave when uh, basaltic magma differentiates? The study of uh, lead intrusion not only tells us how basaltic magmas behave on Earth, tells us how uh, how the di differentiation took place in the, the planetary bodies of the solar system so that uh, different types of meteorites can be explained by similar processes. Also, the uh, generation of important economic deposits of minerals can be uh, can be generated by by these differentiation processes. For example, the uh, the uh, group of ore deposits known as orthomagmatic ore deposits, which are closely related to igneous rocks, and these include minerals such as uh, nickel, uh, platinum, copper, and uh, several others. For example, the, the world's largest platinum deposit is found in the Bushveld intrusion of South Africa. Uh, which is a, an immense lead intrusion about the size of Scotland. And uh, the world's largest nickel deposits are found in the Sudbury complex of uh, Ontario, which is also a lead intrusion. Wager had been at the uh, sub-geological sub meeting in California, and he'd heard about the Moho project, which was a project in those days to use a barge to drill, drill through the ocean crust into the mantle. Uh, it never came off because they didn't get the funding for it. But it aroused Wager's interest in uh, maybe drilling the Skergold intrusion uh, using using the same barge which would be towed in Wootenthal Sund and drill, drill there. 
But that was quickly, quickly, quickly disabused of that idea because uh, the, the, the barge wasn't certified for going to ice-filled waters, so it couldn't, they couldn't take the barge to the Arctic. But it did spark off the idea it would drill the Skagot intrusion. And so they hired the Canadian firm Longyear uh, to, to, to do, do diamond drilling there. And they hired a ship from, from Olesund, a, a, a sealing vessel from Olesund called Polaric, to transport the expedition there. And Polaric, Polaric came to King's Lynn, which was the ne nearest port to, uh, to Cambridge, and uh, took the expedition on board there. In the meantime, however, Wager had died, and so the expedition was now run by Deer, and Deer didn't have the same enthusiasm, I, I feel, that Wager would have had. Wager actually, uh, actually, the, 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 the preceding November, he went to London to uh, visit his, his uh, photographer to buy a new camera. I mean, he was, he was incredibly old-fashioned, was Wager. He couldn't, couldn't go down to Boots and buy a camera from Boots. He had to go to some fancy photographer in the West End of London and buy, and buy a specially, specially recommended Leica. Anyhow, he bought this, bought this Leica from the shop in London and uh, went out onto Piccadilly and uh, collapsed. And he'd had a heart attack and died there on the spot. So he never took part in the expedition. It was run by, run by deer. And it came to be called the Cambridge Expedition, which, which rather irritated me. Anyhow, we, uh, this expedition was in several parts. It was, uh, one, one part was, one, one group would usually do the, uh, do the drilling on Skagod and also to collect samples of Skagod gabbros with the idea of studying them for sedimentary features. Another party were uh, led by Peter Brown, at that time was professor at uh, the University of Sheffield, would uh, go to the Kjallinek area, which at that time was uh, very was unknown, uh, just uh, completely unknown. It's an area to the uh, about 200 kilometres south of Skagatluxrak, and there's an abundance of uh, various sorts of tertiary intrusions there. And uh, then after that, they would go and study the Cap Edward Holm intrusion on the opposite side of Kangatluxrak, which in the, the, the days when Wager and Deer was overwintered in Kangatluxrak, uh, Deer had taken an interest in the Cap Edward Holm intrusion. It's a very much larger gabarite complex than Skergord, about three, three or four times the size, and uh, is a product of multiple intrusions of basaltic magma. So they would, they would study that. Curiously enough, Peter Brown had uh, was also an, an influence in me doing geology because he'd been my next door neighbour during World War Two, and at that time he was uh, he was I think he was at the order of fifteen years old. I was probably probably four. But he and his brother had set up in their attic a what do you call it a display of the desert war where they'd uh, sprinkled sand all over the floor and made sand dunes. They had, they had little tanks and things going through it. And he used to invite me in to see that. And anyhow, when, when, I was, uh, when I was leaving school, I uh, thought I'd contact Peter. I'd ask him what, 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 what I should do. I was thinking of doing geology, I told him. He said, oh, don't do geology, he said. There's no future in that. Uh, because this was at the time, of course, when the British Empire was collapsing and all the, all the geological surveys around the place in Africa and that were being, the geologists were being fired. And Peter himself had been geologist in the, in the Tanganyika survey, so he, uh, he was familiar with that. Anyhow, 
He said, if you decide to ignore me, he said, the best place to go is to Manchester. Of course, he would say that, because that's where he'd got been. So anyhow, I went to, I went to Manchester to read geology there. I'll get back to the expedition and uh, drilling Skagord. Well, we, drew, we drilled the, uh, drilled the, uh, the lower zone of Skagord in an attempt to get into the hidden zone. And after about, I think, I, I don't remember what it was, 500 metres, I think, it, the drill showed signs of uh, leaving the intrusion altogether. We were, uh, got, the drill was going out of the intrusion, so we decided, Deer decided we should drill somewhere else. So we moved the drill rig with great difficulty. We had to build a raft of bits of old, old telegraph poles and stuff from the de- demolished American World War II meteorological base. We had to build a raft with the tele- telegraph poles and oil drums and float, float the rig down Utentelsund and then winch it, winch it on shore there and we'd drill a new, drill a new hole at the foot of Utentelsund, at the foot of uh, Forbindelsen's Glacier. Uh, well, that's all very well. What we didn't realize at the time, and what we found out later on, was that we were drilling through uh, through a, a particularly exciting part of the stratigraphy of Skergord, where the pressure precious metal concentrations. But uh, we 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 had we had uh, diamond diamond core samples of that. But for some reason, nobody showed any interest in working on this stuff. We acquired all these all these drill cores at great expense. But they would never find anybody who was interested in working on it. So it languished in a, in a store in Cambridge for many years. If they'd worked on it, they might have, they might have discovered platinum, palladium, and gold and stuff in these cores. But they didn't. That was to be uh, that was to be that was to be done by by uh, Platinova many many years in the future. This was 1966. But on returning to Oxford, Kent found that he had to deal with a new professor. And uh, I didn't see eye to eye with the new professor, and uh, thought I'd thought I'd, I'd, I'd make I'd, I'd move somewhere else. I was only on a limited contract, anyhow, a three-year contract with the department. It wasn't sure it was going to be going to be extended when when the time right, especially that I got loggerheads with the professor. So I happened to be at the Geological Society in London one day, and. It, in the gentleman's toilet, I ran into a driver from St Andrews, and he said, "Have you heard they've got a job, a job for somebody like you in Copenhagen?" I said, "No, I haven't heard that." And he said, "Well, get in touch with Professor Sorensen in Copenhagen," and uh, that's what I did. And I went over to Copenhagen and had an interview there, and uh, they, they uh, decided to hire me. When I came back to Oxford, I. Uh, had an altercation with the professor there, and he said, if you don't like it here, Kent, you could get a job somewhere else. And I said, well, that's exactly what I'm, do- what I'm doing, and I'll tender a resignation now. <laughs> and he said, you're not serious, are you? People don't leave Oxford when they have a job in Oxford. And I said, well, here's one person who is going to leave Oxford, which I did. <laughs> well, when I got to Copenhagen, I, uh, a professor of the uh, Petrologisk Institute was... Uh, Henning Sorensen, and he'd worked for many years on the Ilibalsak intrusion in the neighbourhood of uh, Narsak. In South Greenland. And uh, the whole institute was geared up to working on Ilibalsak, which is an incredibly interesting intrusion. It also has the disadvantage incredibly unusual, so whatever you find out about Ilibalsak doesn't have any, any real global consequences. It's just, uh, it just applies to a a very restricted group of rocks known as the Agpaitic rocks. Well, uh, 
he naturally assumed that I would take part in this this uh, summer jamboree up there, and uh, so I worked worked on what's called the Kokota kites. They're the, the lowest the lowest rocks within the intrusion, and they're strongly layered. If you if if you like to put look at it that way, it's like a sort of uh, a sort of uh, exotic type of scaregore, the layered igneous rocks. But in this case, they're highly alkaline, highly evolved, and they contain the rare mineral, the, 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 what's otherwise a rare mineral eudialite, as a rock-forming mineral. Anyhow, I decided to work on the on the Kokotakites. Henning thought this was a good idea, and I had a I had an assistant called Henning Bozer, who to my great chagrin never finished his degree. He uh, became a perpetual student, and then a perpetual advisor to mineral companies prospecting in the area. Every 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 geologist who's worked in the area knows Henning Bozer, and every prospecting company relied on his expertise to help around. Well, my first idea was: you look at all these all these layers in the in the, in the Kokotakites. It looks like a, a multi-layered cake uh, with with the layers which consist of black at the bottom, then a, then a red layer, then a white layer. So it looks like a sort of uh, Battenberg cake, uh, but many of these layers. And I thought the, the first thing to do would be to uh, map the stratigraphy of it. The relative position of the layers, one above the other. We give each, each layer a, a, a number and we collect a, sample, a series of samples through it. And that we did. There were 33 layers, I think. And so we, we started off at layer zero, which was somewhere in the middle, and we went down to minus numbers and then up to plus numbers. And we had this uh, we had this uh, collection of rocks which Henning Bose was supposed to work on, but he never did because he was most interested in going to Greenland. And uh, every year, every year when he'd been he'd been in the field, he came back and he spent uh, spent the time between coming home in September and Christmas tidying tidying up his results and writing his field notebooks and various things. And then. Uh, when I expected to get on with doing the work in January, it stopped preparing for the next year's field, field work. And this more or less went on for 50 years, I guess, or 40 <laughs> years, maybe. Anyhow, I spent two years on this project at Ili Mausak, but it wasn't really my thing because they uh, they didn't really seem to be going anywhere. They went up there every year and they did various things with the Atomic Energy Commission and looked at looked at various outcrops that were mystifying. And they look at the outcrop and say, "Isn't this mystifying?" And then they not do anything about it. Come back next year and say, "What is a mystifying outcrop?" And we didn't really, I mean, it was all very, all very well. It kept the institute busy and. Uh, Many students graduated on that. Some, some of them, some of them, they, they did very, very good work. In fact, and went on to uh, uh, shining careers. People like Avnita Steenfeld and uh, Lotta Melchior Larsen. But uh, it might have been a good project for them, but it certainly wasn't the sort of thing that I wanted. So my my interest started to uh, started to return to East Greenland, and uh, I thought that uh, it very promising to uh, look at the look at the um, igneous rocks around Kangatluxurak. That uh, Wager had done a wonderful job in his time. He mapped. Effect, effectively mapped an, a, a huge area of country extending from, uh, well, south of Amazonic, 
where the uh, British Arctic Air Route had its, had its base, to uh, essentially up to Scoresby Sund. An air of country must be in excess of, uh, I don't know, probably in excess of 70,000 square kilometres. And it done done all this from the deck of a ship and uh, by walking around various places. So Wager did a, a tremendous job there, quite naturally. A lot of stuff I hadn't seen, and I decided it was time to start, uh, start tidying up the loose ends there, which is what we did. But I came into it. Not as a university project, because I just decided it was an area I'd like to work in, and it came to my attention that the Nordic Mining Company had taken a concession there, and so I descended on the Northern Mining Company to, to push my case of being one of the prospectors. I'm Julie Hollis, and you've been listening to Polar Podcasts. In the next episode, we hear more from Emeritus Senior Scientist Niels Henriksen about his years spent mapping the Caledonian Fold Belt in northeast Greenland.